Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Eric. And I'm Joe. And this is Speaking of Race. Guys, voting day is like just around the corner. And I mean, I don't know if you sense it, but the tension I feel about this election is off the charts. It reminds me of 1968. Yeah. You know, actually, Jim, you already foreshadowed some discussion of the election back at the end of our episode in June on the BLM protests. You weren't very optimistic then, remember? (laughs) No, and I'm not now either. You forecasted an election that would involve suppression of non-white voters, and you made the point that even if election changes our national leadership this year, we're going to have to confront systemic racism. And that will require a change that extends well beyond elections. And it's likely not going to be supported by even well-meaning white people in the U.S. At least that was what you seemed to be saying back in June. Yeah, and yeah, I agree. And even though there was this great awakening by the U.S. media and, you know, corporations and all those people who put those black squares on their Instagram pages with those Black Lives Matter hashtags, all that kind of stuff. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, as much as it pains me to say it, I think you were right to be pessimistic, Jim. I'm sorry to be right in this case, but new polling data confirms that while a majority of both the overall and even the white population supported the protests against police violence back in June, mm-hmm. that's now fallen to 39% overall approval and just over one-third white approval. Uh, and, and even reforms that seem to be absolutely going to happen, like the Minneapolis City Council pledged to dismantle the police force that killed George Floyd, yeah. and yet it, that hasn't happened. All of those things are growing less and less likely. Sadly, yeah. I mean, after that initial flurry of activity that really seemed like a promising moment for a potential change, I think the impetus has come to a grinding halt, especially among white groups and white folks. Mm. I mean, we're in the seventh month of a pandemic, and it's looking worse instead of better. We're five months out from the killing of George Floyd that sparked what could have been the largest racial protest in American history. And we're only a few days away from the most contentious election I can remember. Yeah. Uh, in other words, there's no shortage of contentious public issues dealing with race right. in 2020, right. yeah. along with everything else in 2020. <laughs> but as usual, there's what seems to be obvious on the surface. And then there are deeper historical and scientific issues yeah. at work that need some unpacking. And that's what we're here for, right? Yay. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I think we should start today by explaining two recent articles, one from the tabloid New York Post entitled Joe Biden's Disastrous Plans for America's Suburbs, (laughs) and the other, which couldn't be more different, from the New York Times called How Decades of Racist Housing Policy Left Neighborhoods Sweltering. Okay. All right. (laughs) Go for it. Bear with me. Okay, so the first article, the the New York Post one, says that Biden and Harris want to reinstate the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing, or AFFH, policies, which Obama put into effect in 2015. The AFFH empowered the Department of Housing and Urban Development to make sure that states and cities and counties that it was funding were not discriminating and that they were not only not discriminating, but taking active steps to reduce racial segregation. Wait, that's the Joe Biden's disastrous plan one? How's that a disastrous plan? We'll get there. So the second article, the New York Times one, describes a really great study that was done recently that we'll we'll link to the original study on urban heat anomalies or extra hot temperatures within cities. Hmm. 
It was a study of 108 cities across the U.S., and it found that areas that had historically been redlined were on average like five degrees hotter in the summer than non-redlined areas. And in some cities, the difference was up to 12 degrees. Well, okay, hold on, though. We're going to have to explain what redlining is, and then and then we can explain why the scientific data is significant when you know about the history of redlining. We'll get there. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay. And, and then we're going to tie this all to voting, which is why it's important to be talking about it right now. Okay, that, that's all good. Very ambitious. So can we just start with the redlining bit? Yes. Okay. So listeners, back in April, we talked a little bit about the Federal Housing Administration or FHA's use of the Homeowners Loan Corporations or HOLC's neighborhood ratings in the mid 20th century. That created a lot of the urban segregation and poverty that we still see today. We were talking then about how the concentration of poverty in urban areas creates physical consequences for the racial minorities that puts them directly at higher risk for COVID exposure and severity. That's right. Yeah, but at the time, we kind of glossed over the history or the purpose of the HOLC and the FHA. And that's important here because that history is still shaping urban segregation today. History, right? Yeah. Okay, so the the HOLC was created as part of the New Deal in 1933. And its job was to refinance home mortgages for families whose homes were what we would now call underwater. So it was a whole process that would prevent foreclosures and the growing wave of homelessness that was starting during the Great Depression. As part of this process, the HOLC undertook this massive campaign and evaluated thousands of neighborhoods across the country. And the point of doing that was just to figure out how risky this whole refinancing would end up being. Right. And when the FHA was created the following year, the idea was to try to infuse cash and jobs into the construction industry. Mm It began using the risk assessments the HOLC had created to underwrite mortgages and incentivize bank investments in neighborhoods. I mean, to me, these sound like good ideas, right? They absolutely do. But the problem was the system the HOLC used for rating neighborhoods. They had four categories. A, which was colored green on the maps for the best neighborhoods. B, which was colored blue for still desirable. C, which was colored yellow for definitely declining. I grew up in one of those neighborhoods in San Francisco that the three of us combined couldn't buy a house in today. (laughs) (laughs) And D, colored red for hazardous. The term redlining derives from the hazardous label attached to the D or red neighborhoods, which indicated that no mortgages should be underwritten there. Okay, so can you say how they decided which neighborhood got which color? This is classic, right? The two major criteria for evaluating these neighborhoods were the characteristics of the area and the nature of the population. Frederick Babcock was the first director of the underwriting division of the FHA, and he wrote their manual in 1939 using the data and the ratings the HOLC had accumulated. He equated racial composition Uh, of a neighborhood hmm. with the type of use the land was undergoing when he wrote it. Eric, can you take this quote for us? All right. Let me get my my quote reading hat on. The infiltration (laughs) of inharmonious racial groups will produce the same effects as those which follow the introduction of non-conforming land uses, which tend to lower the levels of land values and to lessen the desirability of residential areas. There you go. And that was exactly how the FHA decided to give or not give mortgages. So Uh, the less white the neighborhood was, 
the more automatically risky mm. the FHA rated it by their own definition. And they were blatant about it. That, that meant that mortgages and other federally backed forms of credit were harder to get unless you were in one of those white neighborhoods. Okay. Right. And this, of course, produced a pattern of pushing government money toward white neighborhoods and away from black neighborhoods, just at the moment when many African-Americans were moving from the South and entering northern industrial cities. So, you know, intentionally or not, those New Deal policies created what would eventually be called ghettos. Yeah. And... One way of addressing this might be to create more affordable housing outside of traditionally redlined neighborhoods like, you know, that New York Post article says Harris and Biden want to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this is something that was supposed to have been addressed by two of the most important acts signed by Lyndon Johnson back in the summer of 1968 in the middle of all the riots. Yeah. The Fair Housing Act and the Housing and Urban Development Act. Mm. Those were pretty successful acts. In fact, the the HUD secretary who presided over the single largest construction of federally subsidized housing in American history was George Romney, huh. Mitt Romney's father. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I mean, if we're honest, all this should have been prevented by the Civil Rights Act of 1866. I mean, that was the first Civil Rights Act signed in the U.S. right after the abolition of slavery. And supposedly... All citizens, without regard to things like skin color, were supposed to be granted exactly the same rights in use and purchase and lease of real estate. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That didn't happen, though. No. So, <laughs> you know who George Romney's Housing and Urban Development Department ran into back in 1972, though? Uh, no, I don't. I am not a crook. Richard Nixon. <laughs> Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The GOP switched to the public-private initiatives like Section 8 housing and basically divested from the plans under the Johnson administration uh, only a couple of years into these programs. Plus, as certain real estate developers like Fred Drumpf and his son Donald <laughs> showed back in the 70s, oh. Nixon's executive branch would only go after you for housing discrimination if you were really, really outrageously egregious. Basically, you get by with almost anything. Huh. Hmm. Not enforcing these anti-discrimination laws in housing was just one piece of the larger GOP Southern strategy. Oh, yeah. Okay. I've heard this term before, Southern strategy, but you're going to have to explain it. Okay, so the Southern strategy was the name given to the 1960s transition of the Republican Party. And it was really a transition away from its old ideology of, you know, Lincoln and emancipation and toward the party of George Wallace and the Dixiecrats. So starting with Richard Nixon's campaign in 1967, Republicans began to play on whites' fears of racial minorities and all those policies that were passed by Democrats, the, the things that we think of as being part of the civil rights movement, uh, like what Jim just described, the fair housing, but also integrated schools after Brown v. Board of Education. And the effect was to move white voters away from the Democratic Party, where you know the, the South had been solidly Democratic since the 19th century, mm. to move all those whites away from the Democratic Party and into the Republican Party, where the vast majority are still to this day. I mean, it was such yeah. a good strategy that really the Gulf South flipped from almost entirely Democrats, almost entirely Republican in less than a generation. 
Wow. I remember a smarmy political operative for Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, Lee Atwater, who was interviewed about the Southern strategy. He inadvertently confessed in a very racist statement just how it was designed to harm African-Americans while appearing non-racist. Oh, let's play that clip. Here's how I would approach that issue as a, as a, as a statistician or a political scientist. No, as a psychologist, which I'm not. Is, is how abstract you handle the race thing. You start out in 1954 by saying nigger, nigger, nigger. By 1968, you can't say nigger. That hurts your backfire. So you say stuff like uh, force busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting so abstract now. You're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things. And the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. Okay, well then, I guess that's pretty blatant. So what he's doing there, if I'm interpreting it correctly, is admitting right out loud that the Southern strategy was intentionally creating policies that were cloaked racism that would harm black people more than non-black people. Yeah. And this, so this takes us to voting or or more specifically to gerrymandering. Oh yeah, okay, that's good. Okay, so do you guys know the background of gerrymandering? No. Are yes. You, you do? Yeah, but you should tell us anyway. Okay. <laughs> All right, well, so it, it goes back. I mean, people say that it was even happening earlier than this, but it really goes back to 1812 when Massachusetts Governor Elbridge, it's actually Gary, not Jerry, but Elbridge Gary drew election districts around Boston that would favor his party. And one looked like a, a dragon or a mythological salamander, which is why it's <laughs> called, should have been called Gary-mandering, but it was Jerry-mandering. The, the drawing of these strange shapes helps the parties that do it in two ways. They they crack, which means they disperse a powerful voting bloc's influence across multiple voting districts, and it has the effect of diluting the influence of those voters. Mm-hmm. Or they can pack, which means squishing everybody in a particular constituency into one district, which reduces their voting power elsewhere. I mean, in both cases, what the controlling party is trying to do is to waste as many of the votes of the other party as possible. They're, they're wasted because they're really unlikely to contribute meaningfully to an election outcome. So gerrymandering now is just far more precise and extreme than it ever has been. And really, both parties now regularly engage in it. It's true that both parties do it, but the modern version of gerrymandering was overseen by a Republican political strategist named Thomas Hoffler. Hoffler is one of those guys that you may never have heard of, but whose work has had a really outsized impact on U.S. politics. And so, among other things, he masterminded the redrawing of congressional districts in the 1960s. And the idea was to pack African-Americans who, after Johnson's reforms, were more likely to vote Democrat, mm. to pack them into a small number of districts. Yeah. The GOP, the idea was they would then win the remaining largely white districts. And Hoffler did this especially in North Carolina, but really all over the South. I mean, I think the the sort of sad and ironic thing about this is that Hoffler's redrawing was often justified by him saying that it was necessary to support the Voting Rights Act. Mm-hmm. But pretty soon, I mean, yet again, no one was trying to hide what was really going on here. I think there was this quote from Hoffler himself in 2000 where he says, quote, redistricting is an election in reverse. It's a great event. Usually the voters get to pick the politicians. In redistricting, the politicians get to pick the voters, end quote. 
Yeah. So, so he's being pretty uh, upfront about what he's doing right. there. And actually, when I was prepping this episode, I discovered that Hoffler just died in 2018. I didn't know that before. And after his death, just really recently, his daughter released a bunch of his private files. Mm. Here is a crazy twist. Those files show that he was one of the key players behind Trump's attempt to add the citizenship question to the 2020 census. Oh, yeah. He even wrote the justification for it in the Department of Justice letter. And he trotted out that old logic that it would be necessary to support the Voting Rights Act. Uh, But privately in those files that were just released, he predicted that the information gleaned from that question would support redistricting in a way that would be really advantageous to, quote, Republicans and non-Hispanic whites, his words. mm -hmm. So it looks like part of the purpose of that citizenship question would have been to collect information that would have supported more redistricting in yeah. favor of Republicans and white people. Yeah, that makes sense. All of that is in in pursuit of saying, guess what? Our voting system is rigged, <laughs> but not the yeah. way that Cheeto in chief says it is. <laughs> it's rigged in his favor. Uh, yeah, very much so. I mean, to get a sense of how ridiculously our districts are drawn, you could just look at a map, which we'll link to in our show notes, and you'll see things that look like crazy mythical dragons and salamanders. (laughs) But another way you could look at it is through what's going on with the people inside those ridiculously drawn districts. Say, like, health, right? We're in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. So we could take a look at the differences in health between particular voting districts. That's a great way to get insight into how those districts have been specifically engineered to squish constituencies into small numbers uh, and dilute their voting power. Yeah. Uh, okay, guys. Um, I mean, I'm enjoying this conversation about politics and history. Don't get me wrong. But like, we also put science in our podcast. So I know political science has the word science in the name, <laughs> but are we going to do science we will get there. <laughs> okay. I guess we're, we're getting going. there. Okay. 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 So here we go. In June this year, 2020, the Pew Research Center reported that the majority of coronavirus deaths in the U.S. were in Democratic congressional districts. Huh. It was about 75,000 out of the total of 92,000 deaths that had happened by mid-May were in Democratic districts. So a lot. I mean, that that is a grim number to be sure, but I would imagine... You could explain that just by saying that the first places hit were, you know, New York and Seattle, not not like heavily Republican areas. Sure, Eric. And and what you're saying is what a lot of other people speculated, you know, namely that people in urban areas die more, number one, because they live closer together. And also that people in urban areas, number two, tend to vote Democratic rather than Republican. Sure. That might be true. But that's not what they found. When they drilled down, what they found was that those Democratic voting districts with the highest death rates were the ones where most non-white residents have been concentrated through decades of redlining and gerrymandering. Hmm. Non-white people are dying from COVID much more than white people are for all the reasons we talked about in our April episode, you know, poor health and healthcare access to start off with. And that's thanks to redlining. Yeah, yeah, it is. Now, not surprisingly, politicians have been actively engaging in voter suppression for decades on top of the gerrymandering uh, procedure. Mm -hmm. In 2013, the Supreme Court struck down one of the key aspects of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which since its inception had required certain states to seek federal approval to change voting laws to ensure that racial groups would have equal voting access. Once they lifted that requirement in 2013, that meant that states 
like Alabama, where I'm sitting, mm -hmm. were freed up to make changes as they saw to the voting oh, process. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And guess what happened? <laughs> <laughs> Almost immediately, 13 states closed over 1,700 polling places. Ooh, wow. Wow. Mostly in the South and mostly in Black or Latinx neighborhoods. Wow. Mm. In many cases, voters weren't even notified that their precincts had been closed. And to make matters worse, many states also enacted voter ID laws at the same time, which required a government-issued ID to vote. So gerrymandering plus these laws, making it more difficult to even get to the polls, those have been criticized as direct acts of voter suppression aimed specifically at people of color. Hmm. Absolutely. A lot of the gerrymandering that went on in the U.S. in the 80s and 90s was aimed at packing those African-American voters into districts known as minority-majority districts. That is, districts where racial minorities formed the majority within the district. Mm -hmm. And those were the same districts with fewer polls open, fewer workers available, fewer hours for voting, long lines where now you can stand and cough on your neighbor for hours at a time. Yep. I just there did this is. yesterday. <laughs> I mean, this seriously was my experience yesterday. I, I did the absentee in-person voting and it was right. a five hour long line and it was vast majority of people trying to do it were racial minorities. Yeah. And now, and now we come to the scientific part. <laughs> oh, good. Okay, good. We're finally getting there. Good. Yeah. yeah. I, you're going to like this okay. or maybe not. Hopefully you won't like it because it's terrible. <laughs> oh, so, okay. so the New York Times article on the urban heat anomalies and in areas redlined over 80 years ago, remember at the beginning of the episode, right. I said that on average, these areas were like five degrees hotter in the summer, some cases much higher. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Okay, so I had two questions right off the bat. So five degrees, I mean, why does that little bit of heat matter? It doesn't sound that extreme. But then I also kind of was wondering, why did the authors of the the study that the New York Times is reporting, why, why in the world do they think this is happening? Okay, so the second question is pretty obvious, I think. Those formerly redlined neighborhoods are the same ones now that have fewer features that cool down the environment, like big old trees and oh. parks and running water and so on. Instead, they have more paved surfaces like highways, big public housing blocks, warehouses, and those all heat up the environment. Mm -hmm. You know, those kinds of infrastructure choices can be pushed to poorer neighborhoods where there are mostly rentals. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And rentals because just home ownership was way out of reach without those government backed loans that because of the new deal were directed mostly toward whites, not toward minority populations. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And of course, renting also means you're not putting equity into a property and property forms the basis of most wealth in the U S yeah. if you're renting, you also usually move around more and maybe you're pushed to the political fringes. Yeah. So when the government wants to plunk a new highway down near you or Amazon wants to open a big distribution center in your neighborhood, you're probably not going to have the kind of representation in the legislature or the kind of lobbying power that you would need to resist that. Yeah, that makes sense. To, to get back to your first question, Eric, why do just a few degrees matter? Right. As for the health effects, you'd be surprised at how little of an increase makes a massive difference. Even one degree during an already hot day tips the risk of hospitalization higher for people who might already have underlying conditions, okay. especially respiratory or circulatory ones that we know are highly prevalent because of systemic racism in minority populations. Uh -huh. it, why, why is that physiologically? 
Right. So that's because on hot days, the body pumps a larger volume of blood to the skin to try to cool you down. Okay. That's a natural response, but it puts extra strain on the heart and sometimes lungs and kidneys as well. Oh, okay. And those are the three most common points of damage for people who have heart disease or diabetes or asthma or COPD. Oh, now that makes sense because when we talked back in April, those were the very chronic conditions that are found in poor communities. And those are the very conditions that leave them more vulnerable. Those are comorbidities. That means when you get coronavirus, you get a worse case of it and may yeah. even die from it. Yeah. yeah, it's a perfect storm, really. It's, huh. it's those very same chronic conditions that are most responsive to extreme heat. Wow. So it's no surprise that you know people die a lot more during heat waves, especially people with those conditions. Take just for an example, a study in Rome, which found that there was between an 8 and 15% excess risk of death on heat wave days than on regular days just in that city huh. in older yeah. age groups. So in other words, you're 8 to 15% more likely to die on a hot day in Rome if you're over a certain age. Wow. Okay. So I can see now just a few extra degrees really does make a pretty, pretty big difference. At the population level, yeah, especially for people with chronic diseases. Okay. And it's not just about the actual temperature itself, too. It's also about how people can or can't escape the heat, right? Yeah. So people in poor urban centers are less likely to have air conditioning. Um, they're less likely to have cars to get them places with air conditioning running. They have to travel farther to get to the store to buy food or see a doctor. And mm. so all of those structural factors also add up to more heat exposure, which erodes health and life expectancy even. Yeah. The, the New York Times story that we've been talking about here spotlights the city of Richmond, Virginia, where average life expectancy in its mostly black and urban Gilpin neighborhood, which was once part of the vibrant Jackson Ward area, it's now 63 years huh. life expectancy. Okay. But just across the river in the mostly white neighborhood of Westover Hills, it's 83 years. Whoa. That's a 20-year <laughs> gap in wow. life expectancy. Yeah. Huge, yeah. It's a huge gap. And, you know, they chose that because it's a really stark example. That gap sure. isn't as dramatic everywhere. Yeah. But a recent national level analysis of over 10,000 census tracts did find that there are clear differentials in life expectancy between people living in formerly redline neighborhoods and those not, averaging across all of those data points at least three or four years. Wow. And much more in some places. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think while you were talking, I was thinking, I mean, the expectation is that these high temperatures are going to get even more persistent as the climate begins to change. Yeah, that's right. The CDC funded a study that came out in 2010, and it reported that in the year 2005, there were 10 more days per year of extreme heat in cities across the U.S. than there had been in the 1950s. So even in 2005, we were seeing many more of these extreme heat days. So I imagine things are worse yeah now even than they were then although you know fair to say maybe i'm just biased because we're about to have our fourth hurricane this year as we're recording so yes we're and, under a tropical storm warning as we speak yeah yeah and and you know out here in oregon i was forced to flee my house last month because of the wildfires which were the worst we've had ever yeah and let's keep in mind those effects on cities with large minority populations are not accidental yeah they're the result of deliberate government policy and laws. Yeah, These studies really show the cumulative effects of government disinvestment in non-white neighborhoods at the same time that they were pouring tons of money into white neighborhoods. Uh, yeah. 
If you want to know more about this, there's a really great report from the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, and we'll give a link to that in the show notes. That details how those chronic conditions that we know give rise to greater risk of bad COVID outcomes or heat-related outcomes like diabetes and heart disease are all statistically more common in neighborhoods that were once redlined. Yeah. I mean, in part, that's because in the 1950s, urban planners began to stress things like access to grocery stores and doctors and green space and walkable streets. So those things happened in the new planned suburbs, but not in the redline neighborhoods near the centers of cities. So at that point, that was when these neighborhood level disparities in health began to get much larger than they'd ever been. I mean, this was the impetus behind the Johnson administration's attempt to pass all these fair housing laws, which I guess... These are the things that the Biden and Harris administration, if they're elected, would try to reinstate that uh, that affirmatively furthering fair housing policy thing. Right. But listen to this. Ready? Okay. The suburban housewives of America must read this article. Biden will destroy your neighborhood and your American dream. I will preserve it and make it even better. What? Why are you sneaking <laughs> in? That's a tweet from President Trump of just course. this past summer. Okay, okay. So race and housing is again an election issue, right? Uh, Biden and Harris want to reduce discrimination in housing. They want to reinstate the AFFH regulations from 2015. Trump has come out explicitly saying he wants to dismantle fair housing regulations. And in fact, he's been doing so for most of his presidency, if not his whole life. Yeah, It's the Southern strategy that was articulated by Atwater, except maybe taken to an an extreme that would belong more at home in Nazi Germany with this, with this regime. Yeah. I mean, listening today to make a long and complicated story short, there's just this big cycle, unfair housing, unfair voting practices combined. They mean that even voting districts track things like health disparities. And as Jim just said, they're that way by design. Mm -hmm. I, I just don't see that it's, it's going to get any better unless we figure out a way to break that cycle right there. Have I exported my pessimism to you guys? <laughs> yes. Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> that's why elections And you'll matter. have more time on this planet to deal with it. Yeah. Mm. I'm Jim, the biological anthropologist. I'm Eric, the historian of science. And I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. And you've been listening to Speaking of Race. Find us on Facebook at SOR Podcast, on Instagram and Twitter at Speaking of Race, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Vote! Vote! <laughs>